0: Um, As you're turning there, let me just kind of catch you up to speed. Uh, This is our second week in the seven churches of Revelation. So we are going to take seven weeks to look at the seven different churches that Jesus is specifically writing and speaking to. And so I want to kind of give you some background, help you understand Revelation a little bit. Uh, We looked at this last week, but Revelation, the word Revelation, literally means the unveiling. And it's called the unveiling of Jesus. And I just want to be really clear. Uh, Revelation is all about Jesus. When you read Revelation, John, the disciple, John, who's now about 90 years old, the the follower of Jesus, the guy who wrote the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, he's on a little island called Patmos, uh, and he's exiled there, and as he's there, he has this unveiling of Jesus. And I want you to think about John, John who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, knew Jesus intimately, put his head on Jesus' chest for his last meal. John now has an encounter of Jesus and he says, I fell over as a dead man. John, who's been walking with Jesus for a long time, had a fresh revelation of Jesus. And here's the thing. Revelation gives us kind of a new uh, insight or, or idea to who Jesus is. We obviously know Jesus as a suffering servant. We know him as the one who came to die for our sins. But do we see him as the conquering king, as the king of kings, as the Lord of lords, as the, the one who comes back on that white horse ruling and revel- and ruling and reigning in Revelation 19? Like, revelation just gives us a whole new perspective of just who Jesus is. And my prayer is that as we walk through these seven churches, that we truly get a fresh perspective of Jesus. Like, I don't want to just gain some new information. I don't want this to be like, wow, that's interesting, the seven churches. Like, I would love for us as a church community to have a fresh revelation of Jesus. That we would see Jesus for who he is. That we would see Jesus as all-powerful, all-glory, all-might. And that we would actually ourselves, too, realize that, yes, Revelation, though it's about end times, it's a fresh perspective on the person of Jesus. Now, if you've ever read Revelation, I don't know if you ever have, I would highly encourage you to read all of Revelation. I've studied it several times, and I grew up in the church where, like, even as, like, a young kid, they'd read Revelation to us. And this used to really freak me out. Um, I don't know if you've ever read it, and you're like, oh, my gosh, what the heck is this monster thing described here? Um, Listen, obviously, it shines some light on some end time stuff. But really what we see and what we learn in Revelation is that evil is conquered by Jesus. And one day he will rule and reign. And he'll bring justice. And the things that you and I invest in need to change. That we need to invest in heavenly things. In eternal things. Revelation gets our eyes off of this, what it might call Babylon. The things of the world and onto a greater kingdom. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so if you've ever kind of been like nervous about Revelation, just see it for what it is. It's a revelation of Jesus. And we want to give Jesus the rightful place in our life again. Uh, There's this old, you know, British commentator named G.K. Chesterton. Uh, Maybe you've heard of him, but in his British Wit he said this. He says, and though John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. Kind of British wit right there, but I think it's funny. Like meaning when you read some of the, the commentators in Revelation, man, like some of the things they talk about, it's almost like conspiracy stuff, or maybe like freaks you out about end times antichrist stuff, and maybe kind of does something to you. And he's just kind of mocking that saying that we can't miss the picture that it's about Jesus. This is the revelation of Jesus. And so here's what we're looking at. There's seven churches Jesus speaks to specifically and intimately. He knows what's going on, he knows their needs, he knows what's happening. And he has a very specific word for the seven churches. And so we'll be at the second church today, the Church of Smyrna. This is known as the Persecuted Church or the Suffering Church. And yes, on our three-year celebration, we're going to talk about persecution and suffering because that's what we do here at The Exchange. We're probably the only church on its anniversary they will be like, hey guys, let's talk about suffering and persecution. Happy birthday. You're like, really? I, no, just I brought a friend. I'm sorry, but that's just who we are. Um, so we're going to be looking at the Persecuted Church. And I'm just simply calling this title or this idea of what we see here is Smyrna persecuted, but rich. Smyrna is a persecuted, but as Jesus would call it, a very rich church. And so we're going to see that persecution, suffering is happening in the church, but at the same time, there's, there's wealth there. There's richness there. And they have rich, they're rich in faith, they're rich in Christ, and we want to look at that uh, more in depth. And, and here's what's interesting. Uh, Revelation 2, verse 8 through 11, the church of Smyrna, this is actually the smallest amount of words directed towards the church. Jesus, It's only four verses. Jesus keeps his words very short and sweet and very direct to a church that is suffering. Um, If you've ever been around people who are suffering, like the number one rule in like leading a funeral or memorial is keep it short and sweet and to the point. And this is what Jesus does. They are suffering, they're facing extreme persecution, and Jesus encourages them and speaks into them. Now, if you missed last week, or just let me give you a little refresher, every letter kind of has a similar flow to it. There's basically like seven components that we see in each letter. Now, there might be about five to seven of these components, depending on the, the city or the church. So here's kind of the idea. In every letter, you see the destination, right? Number one's the destination, who it's written to. Then you're going to see a description of Jesus. This is unbelievable. Jesus describes himself in such a way that is exactly specific to what that church needs to hear. So you have a destination, then a description of Jesus. Then you're going to see a, a commendation or praise. Jesus praises or commends every single church except for two. Sardis and Laodicea get no praise. Sardis is called the dead church. Laodicea is called the lukewarm church. Uh, Those are the two churches we don't want to be like. Like, out of the seven, don't be like those two. Uh, And next, there's going to be some sort of exhortation, like an encouragement or warning. Maybe a mixture of both where he encourages them, but he also warns them. And then we're going to see some sort of allusion, meaning a reference to his coming. And then lastly, for every single church, there's a promise. He's like, if you overcome, then I will. If you endure to the end, I will promise you or give you. And there's a promise to every church. Now, let me just say this. It says, he who has an ear to hear to the churches. And so the Spirit, Jesus, is basically making it plural to all of us. Saying this promise is not just reserved for those churches specifically, but for the churches to come. So listen, as we read those promises, I so believe that that promise also exists for us today. Now, um, the reason why, again, I just want to give you this intro is, listen, Smyrna, the church we're looking at, Jesus had nothing negative to say about this church. This church and the church of Philadelphia, the loving church is what it's called, this church in Philadelphia had nothing, he had nothing negative to say about. If there's two churches we want to be like, it's the church we're going to be studying today which is the persecuted church, which is the suffering church. Now, by no means do I want to be like, yes, let's be the persecuted church. I don't want that. I'd rather be Philadelphia. But honestly, I'll I'll take it. If we could be a church in Revelation, we want to be like Smyrna. And we want to learn through their suffering, through their persecution. Uh, We don't want to take Christianity lightly. We're not here to play games. You're not here at an event watching someone. This is a community of believers following Jesus. And we want to invite you into that if you're not. We want to say, do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want to walk with Jesus, know Jesus, know the way of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus? Do you want to to, to see what it's like to follow him, how he will truly give you life and life more abundantly? And with that, with that abundance of life, with that internal contentment and peace, will also come outward difficulties. And we see that here specifically in Smyrna. So let's read Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. You guys ready to talk about persecution and suffering? Yeah, happy anniversary. All right, uh, here we go. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Here's what Jesus says. Jesus says in verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear, Any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Uh, Let's just pray. Invite the Lord to speak uh, over us and into us, and uh, we'll get into the word. Father, we just thank you so much. We thank you. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you for Jesus, who came the first time as that suffering servant, as the one who took on the sins of the world, the one who died a death on our behalf. But God, we also thank you for what Revelation shows us, That he conquered death that he will come back and rule and reign and that jesus you invite us into this you invite us into this relationship with you god this this plan that you have from the very beginning that we walk with you that we'd be with you like we once were that we just enjoy you jesus i ask as we just study your word that you'd speak to us holy spirit that you would reveal to us uh, sins idols maybe comfort, things in our life that might be getting in the way, Lord, how we just want to hear from you now. Bless everyone in this place. Speak to them, refresh them, encourage them. God, help us think clearly and soberly about this present moment we're in. We ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. C.S. Lewis famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience, but God shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Aristotle would say, we cannot learn without pain. Let's think about these quotes for a second. God whispers to us in certain moments, maybe he speaks to our conscience, he just speaks as you read his word. And there's times where God shouts and and really pain or suffering is sometimes God's megaphone to wake us up a little bit. There are some things in life we would never learn if it wasn't through suffering or pain, sadly. Like, there are some things I really wish we could learn that would just wouldn't come through suffering or pain. Like, can't I just read a book about suffering and get it, God? But, like, no, sometimes we can't. You know, sometimes you learn the hard way. Parents, you know, if you have kids, you'll say to them, hey, hey, don't touch that stove. I'm like, why? It's hot. What's hot? Hot is hot. It'll hurt you. <laughs> don't touch it. And they're like, hmm. And what do they do? Sometimes it's inevitable that they will touch it. And they go, ah, that's hot. You're like, Yep. And some things, sadly, we only do learn by learning. Now, I really want us to think about this. There's some people we've watched walk through just extreme things in life. Maybe you have a close family member or friend, or maybe you have personally watched someone walk through just personal pain or cancer or suffering or death or loss, loss of home, loss of job. Like, everything happens kind of in one year. And it's crazy, because we've watched people walk through this, and you kind of see one of two things happen. You either see that God uses those circumstances to produce, like, this character in them, like God refines them. They maybe have a maturity or an outlook on life. They maybe have a perspective, you go, how are you handling it this way? Like, are you just naive to what's happening? And just like, you know, God's been so faithful throughout this. And there are some people who usually come out maybe mature through that. And you see that in them, you go, man, I want that. There are others who they go through loss, and understandably, it's painful, it's difficult, but you might see them become bitter. You might see them become miserable people. No one wants to be around that. Like, They've kind of cut off all ties, all relationships. They've gone through a couple of things. They blame everyone. They blame God. They blame the church. They're miserable people. There's there's no joy whatsoever. And it's crazy how obviously none of us can control our circumstances or the pain or the suffering. Like, we don't choose what we go through. We don't choose our pain or our suffering in that way. But we do choose how we respond to it. Like, pain and suffering is inevitable. Misery is optional. And we've got to see how do we respond to it in that moment. And, and what's, what's going to be the person's response to what they're walking through. And here's what's happening. Jesus is speaking to a church that is suffering and going to suffer more. I mean, they're walking through some painful things, as we all look at their history. And they're going to walk through some pretty painful and messed up things. And Jesus is speaking to this church. Now listen, we all suffer. We all have pain. I don't know if we fully can relate to their form of pain and suffering. Like, their form of suffering comes through persecution, I don't know if this is maybe our form of suffering or pain. They're suffering because they're followers of Jesus in a culture that hates followers of Jesus. They're suffering because they're losing their jobs, their loved ones, their possessions. I mean, they're losing really at all to follow Jesus in a very wicked time. And so their suffering might be different than our suffering. I don't think that it's completely unlike our suffering. I think that we might be entering or walking into a season like that, possibly as a, as a culture. We'll look at this worldwide, and we'll talk about it in our context. But we must learn from, from them. You know, we might not, again relate to the reasons why, but we can not relate to their suffering. You know, it's funny, um, yesterday I had one of those, like, proud dad moments. My son, who's five years old, had his first basketball game, and, you know, basketball's like my life, so he had his first basketball game, I brought him to it, and I don't know, it's, like, stressful for me because, like, no one's obeying anything or doing the rules, just five-year-olds running, It's just chaos, and I'm like, like, I want to be proud, I'm also like, this is it. like, I don't know, it stresses me out, but it's just so fun to watch him and play and, and do everything, but before we got to the game, we couldn't find any basketball shorts, and so we were looking for shorts, and my son goes to, it's called Calvary Christian Academy, says the word Christian, and I go, hey, just put your, like, school PE shorts on. He's like, I can't. I'm like, why not? He's like, it says Christian on it. I'm like, yeah? He's like, they'll beat me up. I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? He's like, they'll know I'm a Christian and beat me up. I'm like, oh, this is when you know you're you're a pastor's kid, and like, there's some problems there. I've got to stop like reading to him the Book of Acts before he goes to bed. Um, I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? You play basketball at the YMCA, like the Young Man Christians Club. Like, you're not gonna get beat up. They're like, no, Dad. I'm I'm not trying to tell him, like, okay, well, hey, what if that happened? You don't want to be ashamed of that, like, how cool? And I'm trying to like convince my five to really get beat up. I don't know. It's just one of the weirdest conversations I've had. And I'm like, Micah, you're five. Like, they can't read the word Christian. Like, you're fine. And it's crazy how in his mind, he literally thought to himself and he said out loud to me. I can't wear those, i will know I'm a Christian. And, I, and here's the funny thing. My son's five years old. He tells people about, he'll tell our neighbors about Jesus. He'll be like, do you believe in Jesus? He's very bold, and then he's like, I'm going to get peed up. And I know that's probably some counseling that needs to happen there, and I'm, I'm trying to walk through that door. But I'm just trying to go, no, no, Micah, like, that's not the moment we're in. But maybe, maybe he's not too far off. Maybe he's been feeling or sensing that. Maybe you felt some just social norms. You go, ah, but once I introduce Jesus, it changes the dynamic. Or truly, they look down on me, or they look down on my education, or they look down on what I've experienced once I throw that in there. And imagine that times 100 with this church. I mean, this church is really suffering and being persecuted for the gospel of Jesus. And I want us to get the context, and I want us to understand it in our day today. I think it's going to be very valuable. So let's do this. Let's break it down. Can we do that? Number one is this, the destination. Who is Jesus speaking to? He says in verse 8, to the angel of the church of Smyrna. So that's verse 8. Let's stop there. So the first thing is destination. It's Smyrna. We talked about this last week. Uh, The word angels, messenger, messenger could be a word referred to a spiritual leader, an elder, a pastor. It could be an angel. I think it's most likely a person. We'll move on though. But he's writing to Smyrna. Let's talk about Smyrna. Um, Last week we put this picture up. So I'll put it up again. Uh, The seven churches of Revelation are all in modern day Turkey. Uh, it's called Asia or Asia Minor. The Bible might use the term Asia. No, it's most likely referring to uh, just modern-day Turkey. So we looked at Ephesus last week, right? We talked about it. Go back and listen if you missed it. Uh, this is not the most helpful map now that I look at it, but uh, 35 miles north uh, on the coast is Smyrna. It's modern-day or Ismar, I can't really say it, forgive me, but it's a modern-day city. Now, this is a modern-day city unlike the other six where there's just kind of ruins, or maybe some don't even have the best ruins, but there's actually people still currently living in where Smyrna or Izmir would take place. Now, there was a, today there's about 4 million people there. There, there's maybe a, you know, a few, you know, fifty to 100,000 people there. Uh, let's just talk about Smyrna, though. So Smyrna um, was a very wealthy city. On the coast, we know that a lot of ships would go to Ephesus, but there's a period of times where the larger ships would be going to Smyrna. There was a ton of wealth there. Uh, Smyrna was one of the first cities to actually em- embrace Roman worship, to embrace Roman gods. Uh, I think around like 135 or something BC, they, they started embracing even like kind of Roman thoughts and ideas. And so Smyrna has some, some long history there. Uh, you, you actually can, back then, you would go to Smyrna. There was different temples. Like imagine our city of churches. There was temples. They had a temple to Zeus, they had a temple to Apollos, a temple to Aphrodite. They had a lot of very beautiful, expensive temples where people could go to worship their god. Uh, Smyrna, this city, has like a, it have a long hill, and it's still there. There's a little mount or a little hill, really, Mount Pagos, and there's some governmental buildings there, and it's described by historians as like, it looked like a crown, a crown around the city. It was just beautiful, majestic. There's marble buildings. It just looked absolutely incredible. We do have quite a bit of information about Smyrna uh, back in the day for different reasons, but uh, we believe Paul was the, per- the person who planted the church there. So in Acts 19, verse 10, it says this, It says, all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks, all in Asia. This is in reference, first of all, to Ephesus, how Paul planted in Ephesus, and then it says in all of Asia. Uh, This being 35 miles north, it makes sense that Paul would have been there and planted there. So Paul most likely planted that church there. Now, we do have a lot of Roman historians and even Christian historians who write about the city. Uh, One guy named Cicero called it the city of our most faithful and most ancient allies, Cicero, a Roman historian, says this city has been loyal since day one to Rome. It's really interesting, actually. Uh, there was like a competition about who could build the first temple to the Caesar as a god. Like, re- like Caesar worship, like truly acknowledging Caesar as a god. Uh, Smyrna won that competition. It beat out 11 other cities and is the first one to build a temple towards the Caesar as a god. Tiberius Caesar, the Caesar that was reigning during G- Jesus' lifetime. In 23 AD, this temple to Tiberius Caesar was built. So as Jesus is living, you know, in Judea, you have this temple being built of Roman worship, of worshiping a Roman uh, Caesar. So they're very loyal to the person Caesar. Uh, on Smyrna coins that we still have to this day, there's a saying, it was called, First of Asia in Beauty and Size. You know, like cities have little tags, like this is the best city in Florida, and you're like, that's like the worst city in Florida. They did that back then too. Uh, it said, First in Beauty and in size. They claimed that all of Asia is the most beautiful in its beauty and its, in its size. I mean, they had like a lot of pride in their city. Now, I bring all this up because because of all the uh, God worship, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, because of all the worship, worshipping the Caesars, there was a lot of persecution for Christians who were kind of the outsiders. Christians, I don't know if you know this, were called atheists, actually. We were called atheists because we were viewed as the least religious people. Because it's like, wait, what do you mean? Like, where's your, where's your temple? Well, uh, the, we just need a body of believers. That's our temple. Like, where's your priest? It's like, well, we don't have a priest as you'd have. It might have, you know, it's just so different than what they're used to. So they're called atheists. Now, I, I bring this up because here's, here's a guy I want to introduce you to. There's a guy named Polycarp. So let's get really, like, nerd out, you know, Christian church history. There's a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp is awesome. Get to know this guy. Polycarp was a disciple of John. John, the one who wrote Revelation, is about 90 years old when he wrote this. And uh, there's a guy named, I think it's uh, Ignatius who wrote about uh, Polycarp's discipleship under John, and he also writes about that relationship he had. And so Polycarp was actually the elder or the bishop in Smyrna. He overseed a group of churches in this city. Polycarp, being discipled by John, think about this. Imagine meeting with John to be like, Yo, John, what did Jesus sound like when he gave the Sermon on the Mount? Like, what was his tone? What was his heart behind it? What was the most impactful teaching you ever heard Jesus give? What has stuck with you the most? What did you you like? Imagine being Polycarp, talking to John, who walked intimately with Jesus. This is the guy that shepherded and pastored that area. Now, uh, Ignatius wrote letters to Polycarp, and he wrote letters about Polycarp. And Polycarp, again, was just a huge uh, Christian figure in this city. And this church went through crazy persecution during this time. So much so that people eventually, one day, were just chanting to bring out Polycarp so they could just end him, end his life. And the way the story goes, it's a pretty well-documented story just because of uh, all the letters that we have and replicas we have of it. It says this, that basically Polycarp was called into this theater in Smyrna, and after killing other Christians, they're chanting, like, bring out Polycarp, we want Polycarp. They bring him out, and they basically said, Polycarp, renounce Jesus and say, Caesar's Lord, or we'll have to kill you in front of all these people. Now, there was something back then where you'd actually have to say, Caesar's Lord once a year, show up, say, Caesar's Lord. If you didn't do that, uh, you'd be most likely killed. If you did say Caesar is Lord, and it was just kind of like a petty quick thing, Caesar's Lord. they give you a certificate, and be like, good job, you're good for the year. So you get your quota. You said Caesar is Lord, you get your certificate, just move on. And you'll see why this is important as we move on later. But you say Caesar's Lord, and he goes, I can't do it. He's quoted to have said this, 80 and six years have I served him, Jesus, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So it was on February 23rd, 155 AD, that Polycarp was murdered uh, in front of all these people. 90 years old when he died. Now, again, I want you to think about this. John probably wrote this around 90 AD. He's probably a young man, 20s, 30s, being stopped by John. He's building the church in Smyrna. He's seen people he loved die in Smyrna. He eventually died in Smyrna. A hundred years later, they murdered another Christian bishop in Smyrna to honor Polycarp's murder. There's just a lot of persecution here. Here's the irony. Out of the seven churches in Revelation, this is the only city currently to this day in Turkey where there's actually a group of believers. Let you think about this. The only group of believers in, in a city, out of these seven cities, is in Smyrna is in Izmir. There's a few hundred Christians right now currently in Izmir. My point being that the only remnant of Christians we see was amongst the persecuted church. The only way you see believers still to this day functioning is there in Smyrna. It has a lot of history. And they went through a lot of persecution. They're really creative on how they killed us. And so I want to like, we'll get back to some of these thoughts because it's important. But this is the city Jesus is speaking to. Now please listen to this. That's that's the destination. How does Jesus describe himself in light of all of this? Look, to what, look at what Jesus says, verse 8. How does Jesus describe himself, verse 8? He simply says, these things, says the first and the last, he who was dead and came to life. Jesus always described himself exactly to the city or to that church the way they needed him to be described. He said to Ephesus, he talked about how he walked amongst their presence. He was in their presence and he says, and if you don't repent of your sins, I'll remove your lampstand. He speaks to them in a very personal way. He goes, listen, I am the first and the last. I'm the one who is, who is dead and is now alive again. And I want you to think about this. Smyrna, he said a lot about death. He goes, hey, some of you are going to suffer. Some of you are going to die. Hey, I'll give you the, the you, if you overcome, you'll overcome the second death. There was like a lot of death talk, and Jesus goes, no, no, I'm the one who conquered that. I want you to understand how Jesus not only knows our needs, but speaks into it. He goes, I am what you need. I am the first and the last. I am the one who is dead and is alive again. Jesus describes himself so they can hear exactly what they need. Can we just break this down, by the way? First and last, who is dead and alive. This speaks of Jesus' deity and his humanity. First and last is referring to his deity. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And he was dead and is alive. That speaks of his humanity because he died. The idea is that Jesus, in this simple phrase, refers to his deity and in his humanity, which is unbelievable. Let me say this. There's two verses in the Old Testament where God, Jehovah, God, Yahweh, God the Father, says, I am the first and the last. Here, Jesus is saying, I am the first and the last. That's his claim to deity. If people are going, does Jesus ever claim to be God? Absolutely. And not only that, but Jesus is referring to the way he was described in chapter 1. So every time Jesus describes himself in Revelation 2 and 3, stay with me, every time he describes himself in Revelation 2 and 3, he's referring back to a description of himself in Revelation 1. So here's the verse. It's Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. Here's what it says. Jesus said this, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Jesus just said to John, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who's dead, but now is alive. This is how he describes himself to the church of Smyrna. He quotes himself again. He says this all over again. Now let me just point this out. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the, the Alpha and the Omega is the A to Z, essentially, in the Greek uh, alphabet. He's the first letter. He's the last letter. He's the starting point. He's the ending point. The Alpha, he's the protos and he's the eschatos, he's the He's the last. He said, I'm the first, I'm the last. I'm your beginning point, I'm your ending point. If we really get this as Christians, this will change how we live. Here's the point. Jesus is our alpha. He is our beginning point. He's our starting point. We are here because of God, by God, for God. The point is God created us. God gave us meaning and worth and value. We don't have to figure out what our meaning is on life. God tells us what our meaning is. If we're created by chance, there's absolutely no purpose and no meaning to life. You create that. But if there's a creator who created us, there is a point, and there's a meaning to life, that we have actual meaning and value, that he is the alpha, he is the starting point, and he's the omega, he's the ending point. He's not just the means to an end. He is the end. He goes, I'm the omega. I'm the last point, the ending point. I'm what it's all about. Church, we gotta get this, that Jesus is our starting point, he's our ending point, he's our only point, he's everything in the middle. He goes, I'm the alpha and the omega, I'm exactly what you need. That, that what you should be living for, the omega, your end goal, your end goal, your end points in life is me. It needs to be me. You're living for me. And I, I think if we can embrace this, that Jesus can't just be the end point. He has to be the beginning point. He has to be. Because I don't know the direction of our lives. He has to also be the, just the beginning point. He gives meaning and purpose and value. And I just, I, as a church, I'm just saying, I love this concept of Jesus being the Alpha and the Omega, saying, Jesus, this is you. We're created by you and for you. And the end goal is simply to be with you, that I may know you and the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of suffering, as Paul would put it in Philippians 3. I mean, this is the, this is the Alpha and the Omega. This is Jesus' claim to deity. This is me. And then he says, I'm he who is dead and is alive. And he's saying, hey, don't fear, you're gonna die. I died, but I'm alive, and you too will live. And Jesus, with the description, is really comforting the church. I should be what you're living for, and hey, you're going to face death, but hey, I face death too. And I came out resurrected, and you too will come out resurrected. That's essentially what the letter is. Jesus is speaking and encouraging his church. Yes, we can face death unlike anyone else in human history, currently living. We believe in Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, and though we die, we shall live, because our faith is in him. We have a different view of death. We have a different view of suffering. We approach it very different in light of who he is. Amen? We'll keep going. Number three, so this is the description. We're going to see now he commends them or praises them, but for what? Look at verse 9. So Jesus says, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Okay, so what is he talking about? What is he saying? Let's just break this down really quick. He's actually putting it in a positive light. He's like, I know your works. You've suffered your tribulation, and I see that. I see your tribulation. I see your poverty, and I see the blasphemy. This word is the word slander of those Jews who call them Jews but are not, and so he's basically saying, uh, you're in tribulation. You're you're poor, and you know what? You're being slandered. So let's just kind of break this down, how how this makes sense. So first of all, there's tribulation. I want you to think about this. He goes, I see that you're in tribulation, this is a different word than, like, suffering. It's extreme suffering. Uh, this word in the Greek is thalipsis. It's the idea of a, a grape being crushed and producing juice, or uh, thalipsis was also used as, uh, as a word to separate wheat from the tare. So, like, the actual, like, the, the actual nutrients from just the outside cover. It was to separate the wheat from the chaff. Maybe that sparks your memory on some parables Jesus gave of the separation between the wheat and the tares or the wheat and the chaff. And the idea was that tribulation does that. Think about that. Tribulation, he's saying, separates the wheat from the tares. Tribulation separates the wheat from the chaff. That was the same word. A lot of words were used as like word pictures. And it's a great idea of, oh, philipsis, the separation of the real deal from the fake. It's crazy how tribulation will separate the real deal from the fake. So often it's suffering, it's tribulation that reveals who's really following Jesus and who's just around it. Who's really following Jesus and who's just kind of maybe interested. Or they grew up in a religious environment. The idea is like tribulation. So often, will reveal who's really all in. It's crazy. You just see that throughout history, as the church has suffered, you kind of see like, is this is this a, is this really their faith? they just around it. Tribulation will oftentimes produce that or really reveal that. You know, Jesus said in John 16:33, a verse you might know. He says, "In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, or take heart, for I have overcome the world." I hear that verse. Jesus is like, in the world, you're going to have thalipsis. You're going to have tribulation. This was something promised by Jesus, and he's like, I acknowledge that you walk through this. He's like, one day you're going to have tribulation, but take heart, be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. We talked about that last week. How are we overcomers? Because Jesus was an overcomer. Jesus overcame, so therefore I overcame. He goes, hey, you're going to face tribulation, but be of good cheer, take heart. I overcame that. You too will overcome that. Now, why do I bring this up? Because tribulation is promised to the church. It just is from day one. It's promised to the Christians here. And these, this is a church that's walking through tribulation. And so often, this is how God grows the church. It, it just is. It's crazy how God will use persecution and suffering to grow his church. He, he so often uses that throughout just the history of the world. It's through suffering or per- persecution you see a trimming effect happen, and then you see the seed being planted and growing effect happen. You see people dying off for their faith in Jesus, and then you usually see a small remnant of believers, and then an explosion or revival of faith. That's what happens so often. Tertullian, a church father, said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What plants the church? When Christians are martyred on behalf of Jesus, you're killed on behalf of Jesus. This is the seed that just grows the church. So often it's their tribulation, God grows the church. And Jesus is like, I see it. I see it in you. I see your tribulation. And I promise that. You will have tribulation, but I've overcome the world. And then we'll keep going. He says, I see your poverty, I see that you're poor. Now, this is interesting to me. Uh, in the Greek, there are two words for poor. I'm not going to pronounce it right, so I'll just, I'll just, we'll just put it up here. Uh, but one's like pania. It means poverty through manual labor. It's like the person who has, they, they work with their hands, right? And he goes, you know, you're kind of paid minimally. You work hard. You're a good worker. But you're paid minimally as a paid labor worker uh, back then. And then there's this other word for poor, which is, you can see it. Probably a really difficult word to say. I can't say it. Uh, it just means complete destitution. This is the word Jesus uses for this church. He goes, I see that you're completely destitute. Like, you have nothing. There's, like, poor, and then there's, like, you, which is, like, poe. I don't even know. You're just very poor. He's like, you have nothing. That was them. Like, here's the idea, too. Stay with me, because really think through this. In Smyrna, um, Let's say you worked with metals or you're a silversmith or you're a smith of some sort. Or let's say you worked down by the sea, you worked in the boats, you worked on the docks. Every kind of occupation was tied to some economic god, meaning um, you were part of like a guild. So like we're the the smiths and we like, you know, do stuff with metals or whatever. The idea was you had a a god of metals. Or if you worked with boats, there was a god of the boats. And you would work together. Like you had your little guild, like your little union. And in, in many ways it's kind of like you, everyone would go then to their temple and worship their God of the sea or worship the god of silver. And the idea was Christians who worked in these different fields were going, we're not gonna go with you to worship these gods. I'm not gonna pay homage to this god of the sea or god of metal. I'm just not gonna do that. So think about what happened. A lot of Christians started losing their jobs. Hey, aren't you with us? I mean you're one of us. You have this skill set. Go worship our God or get out. So slowly over time the church started losing its jobs. It started losing occupations, started losing business. They were truly poor. And think about this. This is not an uncommon thing. Persecution a lot of times will happen in that way. You might lose your job. You're a Christian. Does that mean you're bigoted and narrow-minded? Okay, so a lot of times this will happen within cultures and without the world. It's like, well, because you're a Christian, there might be some sort of backlash. There might be some, I don't want to do business with you. Hey, you're not welcome here. There's a lot of assumptions when you say you're a Christian. They're, They're wrong, but there's a lot of assumptions attached to it. This was happening. They were losing their jobs, or income. Actually, in Hebrews uh, verse, chapter 10, verse 34, it says this about Christians. It says, They joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Think about that. Christians at that time were joyfully letting their goods be taken from them, joyfully. You want to take my stuff for being a follower of Jesus? It's yours. Crazy. I'll be honest, that's not a mindset I have. This was the mindset of the church that must be in our, It must be in every church. The mindset of, I'll be poor for Jesus. I'll be poor for Jesus. If I'm going to lose my job for being a Christian, I lose my job. It's crazy. That was their mindset. Notice that Jesus wasn't like, hey, I see your works and your tribulation and you're poor, and if you just had enough faith, you'd be rich. No. (laughs) Jesus isn't like, hey, you're poor. That means you lack faith. That's not what he says. And I want us to like get this. That sometimes, obviously, many times, following Jesus, there's a cost. Jesus said that. If you want to follow me, there's a cost. Before you follow me, count the cost. If you want to find your life, you've got to lose your life. And this is what's happening with the church. This is the gospel of Jesus. It's the life, a life more abundantly. But a part of me is saying, who's willing? Who's down? You know, honestly, as followers of Jesus, this is one of those things I'm, sometimes we can make the gospel message so, so shallow. Let me just say this, God is so good. He rescued me, he redeemed me, he saved me. I was dead in my sins and God loved me and saved me and redeemed me. There's nothing I ever did for God's love, nothing. I never did one thing to get God's love, God just loved me. Same thing with you. Nothing you could ever do to get God's love. But the gospel of Jesus also infers there's a cost. There's a cost. And these Christians were more than willing to give it up. So Jesus says this, I know your tribulation, your poverty, but can we keep going? He says, but you are rich. Do you see that? Look down again, Verse nine but you are rich. How cool is that? He's like, you're poor, but you're rich. Conversely, there was a church called Laodicea. We'll get to in a few weeks. It's our last church. They were rich, but Jesus called them poor. It's Revelation 3 verse 17. What does Jesus say here? He says, uh, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. That's what they said. And he says, you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The words of Jesus to this church. He goes, you think you're rich, but you're poor, miserable, blind, naked. Now, conversely, to this church, he goes, you are poor, but you are actually rich. You know, a lot of us have a false estimation of our spiritual condition. That's the idea. The church that thought they were wealthy, Jesus said, you're poor. The church that thought they were poor, Jesus goes, you're rich. Do we hear the gospel of Jesus? It just, it's completely different from the way of the world. It's this completely upside-down way of living. He goes, we're, they're going, we're, we're poor. He goes, I know you're poor, but you are rich. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 3 in the Sermon on the mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For what? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus goes, you want to be rich? Be poor in spirit. And that was this church. Uh, another way of putting it is in James chapter 2, verse 5. James said, listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? James even said it this way, he goes, man, has God not purposely chosen the poor in faith to be rich in heaven? This church was poor, but they were rich in Christ, rich in faith, rich in heaven. You know, there, you can ha- be extremely wealthy, but be incredibly poor spiritually. And you can be extremely poor, but incredibly wealthy spiritually. Can wealthy people also be spiritually rich? Of course. But as Jesus would say, it's hard for a rich person to the kingdom of heaven. Like, there's also a side of it we got to acknowledge, man. Like, it's, it's hard. Money can blind you. Money's not evil. Money's not evil. Money's a tool that God can use for his glory. Or money can be used as a tool to get your heart captivated for the things of the world. Money's just, it's neutral. But the, the, here's the thing I, I want us to see as a church. I want us to be spiritually rich. Whether you have a lot or you have a little, let's be rich in faith. Let's be rich in Christ. Let's be rich in heaven. Let's lay up and store our treasure in heaven. Amen? Where neither raw, uh, moth nor rust can destroy. Let's truly be rich in the things that matter. Let's be rich in what matters. This church was poor. I want to say this. Who cares if you get everything you've ever dreamed of? Who cares if every heart desire, every home you want to move into, every occupation, every job, who cares if you get everything you've ever wanted but you lose your soul? I mean Jesus said, what would a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Like who cares if you got everything you ever I think I saw this on the news, right? The lotto's at like 850 million. Who cares if you won $850 million but you lost your soul in the process? The the point I want us to see, church, is like you can you can have everything but also have nothing. And you can have nothing, but you can have everything. They were rich in Jesus. They're rich in faith, they're rich in heaven. He goes, I see that you're poor, but he goes, you are rich. One of my favorite verses on the gospel and why we're called the exchange, it's 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. I mean, this is what the gospel is. He goes, don't you get it? God was rich. Jesus is rich. He's in heaven. That's just not his money rich. He has everything. And he, he left it all, he became poor. So you who are poor through his poverty might become rich. That's the good news of Jesus, this great exchange who made us alive. Thank you, Jesus. This was Smyrna, man. They have nothing, but they have everything. Do you not hear Jesus say that? If Jesus looks at you and says, you are rich, what do you think you are? You're rich. That's what he says, you are rich. I love this, these words of Jesus. I want us to feel the weight of that. And then he says, and this is a weird verse, so let's just talk about it. <laughs> verse 9, because that's what we do here. Uh, he says, I know your works, your tribulation and poverty, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. What is he saying? Because um, there's slander happening here. He goes, I know there are Jews who, who say they are Jews, but they're not. They're synagogue of Satan. Let me just say this. This has been used sadly in church history and probably even currently in different ways to kind of create anti-Semitism, to go, these Jews, these Jews were synagogue of Satan. And obviously, we as Christians um, are the furthest thing from anti-Semitic. My Savior is Jewish. The disciples are Jewish. The Bible was written by Jewish guys. And you know what? We, we're indebted to the Jews. <laughs> we are. We're so indebted. What this is really pointing back to was something that was happening contextually, which was this. Like, I remember I mentioned how you'd have to stand before, yearly before uh, Rome and say, Caesar is Lord and get your certificate. The Jews were actually kind of grandfathered in and exempt from that for a period of time. So the Jews didn't have to say Caesar's Lord. They're like, oh, they're the Jews. We know who they worship. They don't have to say Caesar's Lord. So here comes Christians, right? Christians are like, we're not Jews. Well, some of us are, but we believe Jesus the Messiah who's Jewish, and we're not really Jews, but the gospel is from the Jews for the Gentiles, and it's kind of like, so we're kind of one of you. And then there's Jews going, no, no, they're not one of us. They need to confess that Caesar is Lord, or they should be imprisoned, or they should be tortured because they're not one of us. Everyone has to do this but the Jews. So it's basically this slander on their name was causing more persecution. Remember in Acts 17, Paul is being chased and followed by just a Jewish group of people, and they were being, uh, they're basically causing havoc for Paul's life. He's being persecuted uh, for what he's walking through. This the synagogue of Satan. He's saying, I know you think you're Jews, but you're not. You're being used by Satan. Now, so let's just understand that context. Remember what Jesus said in John 8.44? 8, John 8.44, Jesus said to the Jews, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Jesus said that here, and Jesus says that in Revelation. He goes, You're being used by Satan. In John 8, he said it. And here in Revelation, you said it. It's because it led to the murder of more believers in Jesus. So that's like the context. But here's the point. Don't get lost. There's tribulation. There's poverty. There's slander. And basically, a follower of Jesus is going to have those things. If you follow Jesus, there's going to be tribulation, some difficult things we're going to walk through. There's going to be poverty, possibly at times. Lose jobs, lose business deals, lose career. Your social clout goes down. It affects your job interviews. I mean, that's very possible, of course. Then you're going to see, obviously, there's slander. But you don't know, They're Christians. They don't deserve this. Aren't they, like, the worst people alive right now? Like, th- there's going to be all of that attached to that moment of just saying you're a follower of Jesus. So here's why I'm this up. He commends them. He's like, you've done it well. You suffered well. But he's also now going to encourage them. Like, don't give up. Don't stop now. Let's move on to number four. Uh, we're going to see this exhortation or warning. Look at verse 10. So he just basically commends them. Now he kind of warns them. He encourages them. Verse 10. Listen to what he says. Jesus says in verse 10, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. and see the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. We'll talk about the 10 days. What is this? Let's first break this down. Do not be afraid. Uh, the number one command in the entire Bible ever given, the number one direct imperative or command something ever said is do not fear. That's said more than anything else. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Supposedly, there's at least 365 of them, one for every day of the year. Do not fear do not be afraid. You should have no fear, right? Here's what he's saying, Jesus is saying, do not be afraid of the things you're about to suffer. Though they take your land, your possessions, your job, your family, your life, they cannot take away me. Jesus is saying they can take away everything from you, but they can't take away you from me and me from you. Do not fear the things you're about to suffer. You know, fear is weird. Fear can like make us either run to God or run from God. When you get afraid, It can cause us, like, in prayer, to seek God or or run from God. You know, it's really cute to me. My daughter, who's two next month, uh, when our doorbell makes this like little sound, she'll hear this little like dinging sound, and she does this like Yogi Bear run, where she like she runs in place and then like runs to me. Like, I love it. Like, she gets afraid, she sees the doorbell, she hears the doorbell, and like runs to me. And part of is, like, as a dad, I'm like, oh, like I don't want her to be afraid. It's not, it's not good. Because I love it. I love when she's afraid. She's like, she runs to me. It's the cutest thing in the world. And fear can do this. It can either cause you to just be afraid and isolated, paralyzed, run away from God, or fear can cause you to run to God. And so fear, is Jesus He really says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the things you're going to suffer. They can't take you away from me. They can take everything else. But they can't take away that. I, I do want to like talk about this. Uh, there, by the way, there's, there's this weird phrase, uh, the things you're about to suffer for 10 days. You're like, what the heck is that? Um, join the club. I don't know. I have no idea. A lot of people talk about this, right? There's a few ideas. 10 days can refer to, some people would say, 10 periods of church history or church, church suffering where the church has suffered. Some will say it's 10 Caesars that came after this guy who's living named Domitian. Um, some will say there's things like that. We don't know. Uh, some will say it means like as soon as they got the letter, there's 10 days of persecution. Uh, it's believed that this is more of a Jewish or Greek idiom, that 10 days meant a short period of time. I kind of land on that page. That's more of like an expression like, hey, you're going to suffer 10 days. You're going to suffer for a short period of time. We don't really know, but here's the point. Jesus says, don't be afraid you're going to suffer. Let's talk about this, because I really want us to get this. There, this church is about to suffer. Think about Jesus, imagine Jesus giving you a war. Imagine Jesus comes in here and goes, Hey, don't be afraid of the things you're about to suffer. what does that mean? Like, imagine hearing that from Jesus. Like, you're gonna suffer. Don't be afraid. This church really did go through crazy persecution. Domitian, the emperor living at this time, was known for tying Christians to horses and having them go in four different directions. He is known for impaling Christians from the bottom through the top. He is known for drilling heads or drilling holes into Christians' heads and putting, like, liquid metal in it until they died. Very creative on how he killed Christians. I mean, this church went through it. Again, written around 90 AD, given to Polycarp, most likely. Obviously, he would have read this. Being the elder in Smyrna, who would die 65 years later. I want you to think about just what they walked through as a church. Listen, I want to talk about this for us, because what do we take away from this? Listen, there's always been church, and throughout history, there's just been suffering. You know, I have a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. I would encourage you just get it, read it. It's crazy. You'll get stories from the first century, all the way up until the modern day. Stories were in Asia in the 2000s. There are stories of Christians being dragged out of their underground churches and laid on the street, and a bulldozer bulldozing over them as they're singing hymns and praise to God. They hear the bones of their loved ones being crushed. This is like within 20 years, right? There's things whether it's in modern day Iran, Iraq. Christians are being persecuted like crazy in Iraq recently. You know, you can go back throughout any continent. Any part of the world, UK, Europe, Christians burnt at the stake. I mean, there's always been suffering of some sort. Like we can't be naive. Like, we live in a really unique time period. I, I honestly, we are so crazy blessed. There's this unique thing called freedom of religion right now that we have, freedom of speech that we have. It's very unique. It's more of a Western secular thing, but it's a very unique time in human history where we have this expression. And, and thank you, Jesus, for that. Like I'm very thankful that we can gather together in Jesus' name, and I, we don't have to worry about someone busting in the doors and saying, "What are you doing?" You know, I'm so thankful for the the freedoms we have. I do think it's good for us to hear, though, and learn and take away, because I don't foresee things in the future getting more religiously free, I see things getting less religiously free. You know, I come from California, I come from a state where there's essentially forced speech happening. Use the right terminology when it comes to gender or you will be penalized or fined or possible future other things. Several years ago, there's talk about churches losing their tax exempt status if we don't do a transgender wedding or if we turn down a a couple that we don't agree with their sexual identity, we would lose our tax exempt as a church. You go, what's the big deal? It's not really not that big a deal. It's not compared to the rest of church history, but you do think about churches across America possibly losing 20 to 40% of their income that go to families, that go to the gospel, that go to rents and food and distribution of every sort, and you think about 20 to 40% of that gone. Is the end of the world? No. Is that possible? Absolutely. I wouldn't be surprised in 10 years if we lost our tax-exempt, our tax-exempt status. It's weird to think that way, but I wouldn't be surprised. Would it hurt us? Yeah. But do we double down on the gospel of Jesus? Absolutely. There's this great paradox within church history. When it's persecuted, and when it's suffered, it grows. Do we want this? Who's like, yes, now son of a persecution? I'm like, no. Do we want to be obnoxious? Attentionally, no. Listen, Christians, for some reason, are already offensive enough. we got to take it easy on that. The gospel of Jesus, let that be offensive that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. That's an offensive statement. Jesus is claiming exclusivity only through me, but it's inclusive. Anyone can come. It's the most beautiful thing. You know, we're going to be preaching things. We've done series. You know, it's funny. I I'll laugh at this. It's not even a big deal. Our Facebook got flagged like two weeks ago, right? It's like uh, you have 48 hours or we're moving your church's Facebook page. And no reason why. I was just like, okay, like, it's just funny. I'm like, we had to fill something out. No email saying, thank you for filling this out. No reason why we were about to get excluded. I think it's possibly, if you're with us during our Gospel and series, I think it's probably because of, of the teachings on the gospel and sexuality or something like that. But it's funny because they transcribed our message. So right now they're transcribing this. They're like, hey, Facebook. It's, really, it's bizarre, right? My thing is, now we lost our Facebook page. Let's say that were to happen. It would sink. You're like, oh, man, we have, that's how we communicate. Is that like persecution? I don't know. Maybe. It's a form of soft persecution versus hard persecution. We do live in a moment where I go, thank you, Jesus, for the freedoms we have. I do see that slowly being lost. Now, does that mean we'd be afraid? No. Like, there is something happening. There is censorship happening, and, and whether it's of apps or of people groups, it doesn't matter whether or not we like that or agree with that, but I do want to bring this up. Historically, when censorship happens, usually persecution follows to some extent. When censorship happens, it usually becomes a religious censorship. And I just think it's something to be worth, aware of. Like, censorship historically has never been good in any sort, in any form, and it's usually led to more persecution, we have Romanian Christians and censorship happened there and that was not good for Romanian believers in Jesus. Have, we have people in South, from South American countries, a part of our church, they saw censorship happening and led to more persecution amongst believers. My point is not to say, so we got to freak out. No. I think what Jesus says to this church, what he would say to us, do not be afraid. What did he say next? Do you look down verse 10? The very end of verse 10. Look down. He says, be faithful till the end. Be faithful. Man, I just think Jesus would say that. Be faithful. Should we use our voice and speak up? Absolutely. Do we need to be afraid? No. I I think this is when Jesus grows the church. This is when the tribulation, that philipsis, that separation happens of, okay, who's all in? Listen, though maybe slowly some things start getting stripped away, we double down on it more. We go, okay, we're going to go more. Because the gospel of Jesus is effective, and the world and the enemy knows that. So we're going to communicate. We are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation. Amen? Amen? You know, what we walked through is very, very minimal. I remember like a year and a half ago, there's an atheist guy, part of an atheist club, who saw that we were at Quiet Waters Elementary, and his whole thing was like, get us out of the school. Like, he, he was so angry that churches are meeting in schools, and he writes to the district, and he writes to the principal. To be honest, like, it didn't really affect us. It just made him look really annoying. Like, he was just annoying. The principal's like, yeah, like, like, I'm, the principal's not a Christian. He's like, I'm not a Christian, but that guy just really bugs me. Like, you guys have been great here. Like, you feed our teachers. You bless our kids. We love having you here. Like, you're not going anywhere. It's up to me. You know, as the principal's saying. This guy posted a picture of my family and of our church and basically got flagged by the FBI. I had the police tell me, hey, this guy who posted a picture of your family saying they should get, kick you out of schools. This happened not too long after Parkland shooting. And they go, don't worry, we flagged him. The FBI has surveillance on him. It's like, that's so cool. I love how it backfired on him. You know, it was weird to me to see, like, my, I saw his post before he blocked him of, like, my family. He's like, this is the Bachelors family. And it's, like, weird to see that. But to be honest, like, that's minimal. It's so minimal to what followers of Jesus has faced throughout hundreds of year, a couple thousand years. Minimal. I think we've got to take advantage of the moment we're in and say, we're not going to be ashamed of the gospel. I don't think censorship is ever a good thing at any point in time in any history. It's never led to more freedom in any sort. I think forced speech is dangerous. We should be aware of that. But at the same time, if it limits, at that point in time, we say, but we're going to communicate the gospel of Jesus. Though they take it down, people who we love and follow, and they're removing their posts, their Bible verses, go, it doesn't matter. We're going to double down on that stuff. The gospel of Jesus is so powerful. See, again, this is not to create fear. I love what one author said this. Uh, his name is Daniel Aiken. He put it this way. Listen to this. He says, what should be our response? Exactly what we see here in Revelation 2. Do not be afraid. Expect it. Receive it from the hands of the sovereign God who is testing, pruning, and refining your faith. That's where we're at. What should, what should be our perspective on this? God is testing, pruning, and refining our faith. Do not be afraid. Be faithful until the end, as Jesus would say here. Be faithful until end. Death. Jesus in Matthew ten twenty two says, "You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures the end will be saved." There's constantly that reminder: be faithful until the end. But be faithful until the end, church. Let's be faithful till the end. Amen. Can I tell you what happens when you're faithful? Here's the promise number five. Two promises. Look at the end of verse ten. He simply says, "Be faithful till the end." or till death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Two things Jesus promises here. He goes, if you're faithful until the end, man, I'm going to give you the crown of life. If Jesus says he's going to give you the crown of life, Jesus is going to give you the crown of life. This is his promise. Be faithful until death, and I'm going to give you the crown of life. You know, the Bible talks about five different crowns. There's five crowns that the New Testament talks about. Here's the idea: the Bible also talks about two different judgments. Um, there's one we'll talk about probably later, but it's called the Great White Throne Judgment. This is where you don't want to be at. This is where every non-believer, somebody who's never believed or received the free gift of salvation in Jesus, will stand at the Great White Throne Judgment. Don't want to be there. <laughs> it says heaven and earth flees from God's presence when that takes place. We're like, oh, let's get out of here. There's another judgment called the Bema Seat Judgment, according to 2 Corinthians 5:10. A Bema Seat Judgment is like the judgment that would ha- take place after a race or competition, and they would stand at judgment. But what do they judge for? They judge for how they how they fought how they competed. And it was usually, it's good judgment. Here's your wreath. Like, you, you did it. When the Bible says you'll receive a crown of life, when Jesus said that here, he used the word in Greek, Stephanos, which is different than the word diadem, which you could have used. He doesn't say you're gonna get like this kingly crown. He's like, you're gonna get this, this crown you get from fighting, this crown from victory, this, frou- this crown from competition, this crown from athletics. You're gonna get this crown. And Jesus refers to it in that way. Now, here's what's cool. The five crowns mentioned, I'll bring them up to you really quick. We don't even know necessarily, like, are they literal crowns? Do those crowns possibly represent your position in heaven or authority in heaven or different opportunities in heaven or how did, does that look like? You can read about this if you want more. It's very interesting. I would love to say as a church, like, let's, let's receive this. Let's be faithful until the end and receive the crown of life. James 1.12 uses the same crown. He says, blessed, listen, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the, say it, crown of life, which God has promised to who? To those who love him. This crown of life is promised to those who've been faithful till the end. It's promised to those who love him. There's five crowns mentioned. There's the first one, the crown of life. You can see it here. We'll keep going. There's the incorruptible crown for those who consistently practice self-discipline and self-control over their physical appetites. There's something called the crown of rejoicing. This is the sole winner's crown, those who just uh, won people to Christ. There's something called the crown of glory, which is for those who've shepherded God's people faithfully. And then there's this crown of righteousness, which Paul talks about, to all of those who love Jesus' appearing will receive the crown of righteousness. There are these five crowns mentioned. I really don't know what it means or what it's like. Again, I think it's probably, it could be a literal crown. I do think of Revelation 4 when it says the elders saw God on the throne. They fell down before his feet. It says the elders took their crowns and threw them at his feet. And they cry out, worthy is the lamb and worthy is the God who sits on the throne. And here's my point. I don't know if it's that, Man, I think it'd be so cool to go around heaven and see fellow believers in Jesus be like, these, these crowns? Well, it's gonna go down to the, the crown of crowns, the king of kings. Like, my crown is nothing compared to Jesus. I'm not exactly sure what this looks like, but I think it's like a heavenly, worship-filled experience. I also think the crowns could refer to some sort of position or authority. Not entirely sure, but I'll say this. There's a promise to those who've been faithful till the end. There's a promise to those who love him. James 1.12. Man, I love this thought for our church. Let's run this race Well. Let's not just go through life being a Christian and be like, well, I died believing the right things, right? Like, let's advance the gospel of Jesus on earth as it is in heaven. Let's advance the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Like, let's not just be okay with saying, I went to church, I did some things spiritually, and you know what? I was pretty good. Like, let's run this race well. Let's do what Paul described in 1 Corinthians 9. He who is faithful will receive the crown of life. And then, secondly, he goes, if you have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches so everyone, again... And he ends with, in verse 11, saying, uh, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The promise of this church, too, as well, is saying, listen, you're going to suffer. Many of you are going to die. But if you overcome, you will not see the second death. What the heck is the second death? Well, death is when the body is separated from your soul or spirit. When your soul or spirit leaves your body, it's death, essentially. The second death is when your spirit or soul is separated from God. The second death is when there's separation completely from God. Revelation 20 talks about this as the second death when you're cast away from God's presence forever. He goes, if you overcome, listen, don't fear death. Don't fear death. Everyone's going to die. But you'll overcome second death. There's an old saying, and maybe you've heard it. I like it. You are born once, you die twice. You're born twice, you die once. Everyone's born once. But are you born twice? Everyone's born once. But you see, if you believe in Jesus, the Bible says you've been born again. If you're born again, you only die once. The idea is if you're born once, you die twice. You're born twice, you die once. You'll overcome the second death. That's the promise to believers in Jesus. That we are more than conquerors in Christ. That, guys, listen, church, you don't have to fear death if your faith is in Jesus. What a beautiful promise. That death has no hold on you. Death has lost its sting. That I love how one author put it. He goes, death, Jesus made death a gardener. It, it, the gar- death, you think of death, like behold hold his little sickle or whatever. He's like, all he does now is plant Christians in the ground they can just grow up. Death is now a gardener. You go into the ground to spring up new life. It's crazy. He goes, you have, you've overcome the second death by faith in me. Do you Guys, do you have this hope. I hope everyone here has that hope, that truth, that knowledge, that though you die, you will live if your faith is in Jesus Christ. If you overcome, there's a crown of life to those who love him. James 1.12. I just hope that you embrace this, know this, walk in this. Don't walk out if you're going, I don't know if I've been born twice, don't you? Don't do that. You are an overcomer in Jesus, by faith in Jesus. And he says, you're gonna overcome the second death. This is to a church that's about to face death. And he goes, don't you worry. They might kill you once, but not twice. Jesus in Matthew 10 said this, and just listen to this. He says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him, God, who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Do not just fear those who can just kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul. He's like, that's for your fear, have the fear of God, is what he's saying. And there's something healthy and amazing about that. Listen, you're born once, you will die twice. You're born twice, you'll die once. We have victory and power through Jesus Christ, amen? So I just want to pray with you guys. I want to worship with you guys. I want to, I want to say, if you need prayer, you want, go, I want to confess this. I want to know Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I say, come, get prayer. Let's talk. Confess Jesus. Talk about that. We'd love to invite you into a loving relationship with Jesus Christ, that you are overcomers, that will receive the crown of life if you love him. And we just want to say be, you're welcome to be invited into that. We'd love for you to be a part of that. Let me just pray over you guys. Can we actually do this different? Can we do this a little bit? Why don't you stand with me really quick? Let's stand. I'm going to pray for you guys, and then we're going to stand and just worship and sing and praise God for his goodness and for his faithfulness. So let's pray.